At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, podcast listeners. It's Connor from Intelligence Squared. Before we go to this week's episode, I want to let you know about a very special offer we have for all our listeners. As many of you will be aware, we have migrated to the online space in recent months and launched a new subscription service called Intelligence Squared Plus. We've been having some fantastic debates and discussions from Mehdi Hassan on Iran to Thomas Piketty on capital and ideology. So if you would like to take part in these events, ask your questions to some of our speakers and even watch back all our previous events, then please go to intelligencesquared.com and subscribe today with a special 20% off discount using the code PODCAST. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T. And join us over the next few months as we deal with issues such as taming the coronavirus pandemic and look at the upcoming election in the United States with New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman. So get started today and join the debate via the link in our podcast description. And on this week's episode, we were joined by Professor Mark Blythe and Eric Lonergan to discuss their new book, Angrynomics, in which they explore the rising phenomena of anger in our societies and how we might be able to use economics to make things better. It was a really interesting episode and they spoke to Linda Yu, economist and broadcaster, and we hope you enjoy it. Hello, I'm Linda Yu, an economist and author of The Great Economist. Welcome to this special video episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. A reminder that you can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. I'm going to ask each of you, why did you write the book and see if your answers match up? Mark first. We wrote the book because Eric and I used to hang out at finance conferences. The reason I was hanging out at finance conferences was because I was writing my prior book on austerity and I wanted to meet bond market vigilantes. Eric is the least likely vigilante I've ever met. And we hit it off and we decided it would be fun at some point to write a book, but we could never find the time. And then we came up with an elegant technological solution. Eric, over to you. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think there's no doubt our sort of friendship was a big part. No two ways about it. And 
It's a very interesting exercise in collaboration, I find, working with Mark, because I think, and, and this will, hopefully this will come through and it comes through in the book, we are very different in many ways, not just because he supports football teams that aren't going anywhere. Manchester United? No, Everton. <laughs> Watch the not Everton. No, I, I'm kidding. But yeah, we're, we're very different, but, but we work really well together, you know. And one thing that's great about Mark as a collaborator is there's there's very little ego so we've got i think we've got a nice mix i mean you'll know this linda when you're trying to collaborate with people it's really hard if people are very precious about what they say or possessive about it and we just really hit it off well i think though that's the sort of you know the personal case for it the the idea i think we just really felt that that we we had an insight into what was happening in the world. That was one key thing from a kind of political economy perspective, even though our starting points in some respects were different. And then the crux was was a discovery that anger, this very strange emotion that everybody is familiar with, but nobody really understands, is the arc that brings it all together. I think that was really the genesis of this book. But, but you're missing one point. You're also missing Siri. Because we recorded the book. The reason it's dialogues is because we actually sat down and did it with a couple of iPhones. So that's why it has that unusual structure. And then what was fascinating is we took it out of the dialogue and put it into text. And when we read it back, it it read exactly like all these other books where pointy-headed, geeky, 50-year-old rich white men tell the world what's wrong with it and how to put it to rights. And we thought, this is awful. This is it's read terribly. So we put it back in the dialogue and suddenly it was much better. So from that point on, we knew what we had and it was a dialogue. You've just answered my second question, which is that it's a really unusual format. It's a series of dialogues and between the two of you, which I think really brings the issues to life. So I'm just going to delve now into the issue. So you define Angrynomics. Um, as an economy of heightened uncertainty and anger, where faith in the workings of markets and politicians has been undermined. You both set out to explain and propose what to do about it. So just tell us a bit more about the premise. I'll start with you, Eric. So the first thing I think that's important to understanding the thesis, and then Mark can sort of pick this up, is is the, the concept of anger itself. So, so one of the things that's intriguing about anger is... It's so prevalent, you know, children know what anger is. Every human being has experienced or felt anger at some point in time. And yet we're very inarticulate when it comes to anger. So if I said to you, what are the different types of anger? What function does anger serve? Why do we get angry? Is there good anger? Is there bad anger? Is private anger the same as public anger? we, We don't have a given vocabulary for making sense of this. It's just sort of assumed that we understand it. Um, and so the first part of the thesis was to try and make sense of anger, right? And, and we did a load of reading, and anger is covered in so many disciplines. There's neuroscience, there's moral philosophy, there's social psychology, there's psychology, there's self-help books, right? all covering anger. But nowhere really did we find a satisfactory typology or synthesis. And, and we kind of, through, a very, through a, an interesting process, we came up with this typology, which is there, it's almost like there's, all, there's an angelic and a devilish form of anger. Right? And, and the first kind of binary form is this between public and private. So what's really interesting is when you see private public expressions of anger, like Extinction Rebellion protesters or the righteous anger of, of Black Lives Matter, it's, it's actually argued justified, there's almost pride 
in the anger because it's righteous anger. Let's put it like that. In the private sphere, it's typically associated with shame, right? If you had a colleague who was suddenly getting angry, you take them to one side and say, is everything okay at home? It tells us about an, inst- an internal stress or anxiety. So again, you have this sort of duality where they seem like opposites. And then the second component, so you have private and public are very different, but then the two faces of public anger, right? We have this, this moral righteousness we've described, but also, and this is the football reference, we've, we came upon this, this idea of the angry fan, which anybody who's gone to a sort of big sporting event will identify with. And they're a very curious phenomenon. And why do they exist? And we, we sort of identified this as, as they become identity regulators. So this is the typology that kind of is a starting point for, for setting us up to understand angrynomics. Mark, did you want to say something about, well, we'll come to um, your proposals for the way forward, but is there anything about the premise you want to tease out at this point? I'll just add a little bit on of gloss on what Eric said in terms of the two categories. So let's take Trump, since the man's always in the news, right? So what did Trump do to surprise so many people in 2016? He listened to what many people considered was just noise. There was no signal. And what he heard was exactly that moral outrage, that uh, Midwestern distress, the 20 years of deindustrialization, the neglect, the agglomeration effect in cities that means all the cash goes there, supply chains impact in their communities. And that was there, but the Democrats were unable to receive the signal. They just were completely deaf towards it. And Trump intuitively knew that was there. So he went there and he did the most important thing you can do when there are claims of moral outrage, which is he gave recognition. He recognized that he said, I am your voice. I hear you. Then he effortlessly pivots, travels down to Arizona or East Texas and starts going on about Mexicans being rapists. So what is he doing there? He's using the other side of this, which is, as Eric referred to, a norm regulator, which is using that type of outrage to weaponize it into what we call the energy of tribes. And that's basically what politicians do with that type of anger. You can push it in a direction where there's information from the moral outrage, which is legitimate and needs to be listened to, or you can weaponize it by identifying another and creating your own tribe in that sense. And you can jump very quickly from football fans policing their own to essentially the Trump coalition and other forms of right-wing populism. I want to talk about the quote that you start the book with. You quote Winston Churchill, quote, a man is about as big as the things that make him angry. Why did you choose that to open the book, Eric? Sure. Well, it's a very astute observation as a quote, because we kind of, if you take this idea of public anger having these two faces and indeed private anger, what makes you angry tells something about your character, Right. And, and so this whole point of the, the function in as human beings that anger serves, anger serves multiple functions. And one of the important functions is this whole point about recognition of an injustice. And this dates all the way back to Aristotle. The Greek, Greek philosophers thought anger was an appropriate emotion because it identified an ethical wrongdoing. And, and what I find so interesting about this and why it's such a perceptive concept is there's a great YouTube video at the moment with Cornell West, um, who I think I think he's is he at Princeton now. Anyway, anyway, the sort of who's been a long time intellectual advocate of the civil rights movement, and he he actually says he's being interviewed on CNN, and he pretty much says, "What would it say about our society if people weren't protesting?" 
right? And that's exactly that, that, that Greek idea, which is you're supposed to get anger, angry. So in the ways that Churchill said it, ironically, in this context, that it should be a Churchill quote, it's appropriate that people are affronted by these acts of injustice and violence. But having said that, in the sense that it's the measure of your character, the, the, the anger of tribes, and this is really, really important. I mean, if, again, if you read some of the social psychology literature on the history of this, you know, sporting events in the ancient times and, and in recent events as well can turn very quickly to violence, brutal violence. And that is indicative. We have to be really, really careful about this tribal rage you know, it is it is an age old evolved instinct, which is a precursor to violence. And that's why the bit that we are very, very concerned about is how politicians are exploiting this to motivate what are minorities, but a minority identity regulators in order to tactically win elections. And that's a very important strain and dimension to to what we're we're trying to analyze and understand. Mm. So, Mark, is that why you chose the quote? Eric chose the quote. I chose other ones. There's a quote that starts every chapter. So that one was Eric's. That, that one, I, totally, I, I saw the quote when you put it up and I thought, that works. Let's go. That's a good one. <laughs> I can already tell why you two are successful co-authors. Okay, let me move into um, some of the analysis of the, um, the anger that you uh, very well articulate in the book. Let me just ask you, what makes this anger that you describe different now? You say there has been long discontent with politicians it reminds me of a joke. How do you know a politician is lying? His lips are moving. Uh, so what causes angry nomics to recur from time to time? And why now, Mark? So the middle of the book is basically structured as macro-angrynomics and micro-angrynomics. And that's, if you will, the sort of the, the, the causal story in the book, if you want to use that language. And basically what we say is there's been a kind of train wreck which has been suppressed And let me briefly explain what I mean by that. We use this analogy, as you know, in the book of capitalism as hardware and software, just like a computer. And over time, basically, incompatibilities build up between the economic ideas and rules governing the system and the nature of the system itself, and it crashes. And periodically, we've seen this. So the very first big crash was the end of the gold standard through the Great Depression. Then there was the crash of the 70s and the crisis of inflation and profitability. And both of those times, there were systematic resets. If we think about all of the activity done by humans in the 30s, it was everything from the New Deal and Swedish social democracy to German fascism. Huge attempts to institutionally re-engineer economies. When you get to the 70s, it's less dramatic, but it's just as fundamental. It's the whole turn towards the market, privatise, integrate, liberalise, globalise, the whole thing, and write a whole new software code. The big hardware mod of the generation of the 70s and 80s was, of course, independent central banks. And that becomes crucial because the bug in the software for the 1980s is inequality, which is largely filled in by credit. We have an enormous credit crunch in 2008. That should have been like the 1970s. There should have been a fundamental hardware and software reset, but there wasn't. The central banks just poured liquidity into the system and brought it back to life. 
Well, when you do that, particularly with strategies based upon boosting asset values in an already highly unequal skewed society of asset holders, then the returns to the asset holders increases and everyone else gets increasingly squeezed. Then you batter them with a couple of years of austerity and very low growth, building on top of wage stagnation, which has been going on in some cases for a generation, and you finally get to a cracking point. You get to a point where the volatility constraint of just adding more credit to the system begins to crack. And this is why we describe populists, in a sense, as code writers, albeit, quote-unquote, shitty code writers, because they're trying to write a new OS for the system. They realize the system's broken, but they're unable to articulate a coherent new, if you will, software package to fix it. So that's basically why now. It's a series of errors, buffer errors, that have been building up over time. There was a crash, there was a bad fix, and now that bad fix is coming apart. Eric, I'm going to ask you, the, you've already done this already in terms of differentiating some of the different types of anger. Can you just say a bit more about tribalism? So in the book, you describe tribalism as the reason why football fans will travel and watch their team play regardless of the weather. Um, you, then you also say that nationalism is the modern national form of political tribalism. What causes tri- tribal identity to become part of angrynomics? Well, I mean, this is, it's really fascinating, Linda. I mean, if, if you look at the literature in social psychology, there was research that's been done that's very well established now in the 1960s, which was effectively a, the, 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 the minimum groups paradigm. And which was looking at this whole issue about what caused tribal identities and what formed what, what 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 triggers could cause human beings to form groups, and it is frightening our propensity to break into groups, and that we will make groups based on utterly trivial distinctions, and our sense of group identity and our behaviour as a group, even based on really spurious premises. Okay, so for example, they took classrooms of children and divided them into which one preferred the two abstract expressionists, Clay and Kandinsky, you know, which are two two abstract expressionist Russian artists, and you separate a, a room full of children based on which their preference is. And and you would literally get both group identity and potentially even wrongdoing towards the other group. And these studies have been reinforced now where they've even done it with neuroscience where they've done experiments which based on they will just say you are part of group a you are part of group b where it has no characteristics but your sense of allegiance affects you and it affects our decision making i mean it 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 is it is very very interesting let's put it like that now it's clearly functional because groups are are more successful than individuals ultimately but it has very dangerous dimensions to it quite clearly as well. So our propensity, our willingness to create the other, as it were, appears to be very, very deeply hardwired. And the, the innovation, I think, in, in our book is to identify the role that anger plays in this. Because that, to, to my knowledge, in the literature, we don't find identification of this. So people are aware in the literature and anger that, angry fa- that fans get angry. But they haven't made this link that says, actually... It appears to be the case that most of us don't wander around obsessing about our national identity all the time. But you can, you can switch on this little minority of, of, of individuals who can kind of trigger a very strong sense. And once it's brought to our attention, it's like everybody turns a certain color or shade. And as, so this propensity is a hardwired uh, and very, very powerful propensity. 
Yeah, I'd just add to that two things. One of them is a great example that Nassim Taleb uses, which is uh, why is all orange juice in the US kosher? And this is basically the point about the intense preferences of minorities. You could go the, pro- the you could go and make another plant to just do kosher, but that would be prohibitively expensive given the numbers. So you might as well just make like, all kosher, right? So in a sense, minority intense minority preferences tend to win out. So that's built into it too. But the other side of it, and this is where I want to talk about the micro side of this micro agronomics, we basically talk about humans dealing with uncertainty. Now, you know, as economists, we're all taught to think that risk is uncertainty and it's singularly not. And by uncertainty, we mean that basically the past state of the probability distribution is no guide to the future state. So you can have plans, you can think you know what you're doing. It's a bit like investing in an accounting degree and then waking up in a world of turbo tax, right? Suddenly you're redundant. And what the case we make in the book is the combination of aging societies and more and more advanced technologies, digital technologies, platforming, etc., has made people more uncertain about the future in a fundamental sense. They feel that they cannot control their lives. So if you add these very real economic stresses generated by macro crashes, and then you add these micro stresses to this, then put in what Eric's been talking about, that's that whole nexus that generates an angry response. That's how that comes about. And basically, you know, we, we find ourselves defaulting into tribalism or clanism or whatever adjective you want to use for it, because that gives us the sense of stability that the world denies us. We live in a world we can increasingly not control, but we have this illusion that we can control through these narratives that we construct about I'm a Trumper or, you know, I'm a Bernieite or I am a 4chan conspiracy theorist or whatever, an anti-vaxxer, whatever floats your boat. But we're kind of subjectively trying to create through these groups, through these very intense groups that are very much based upon everybody else being wrong, a sense of control in our own lives. Yeah. Yeah, in terms of your micro stressors, that really, I think, helps just kind of fill out how that feeds into um, the macro picture, especially around private anger. Now, you differentiate um, tribalism from legitimate anger. Uh, You define that as moral outrage. So in that chapter, you two discuss referendums as a chance for the electorate to show their anger and vote against um, those in charge. So why do we also see more moral anger now? Well, that's a great question. So I I, I guess it's our claim would not really be that it's not like we're measuring the frequency and quantity of of moral outrage and trying to say there's more now than there has been historically. I I, I don't we wouldn't be really making that claim. What what we're intrigued rather is, is is trying to understand the form of moral outrage that we're observing currently. Because as as Mark describes this kind of history of forms of capitalism, and we, we should get him to, to talk through it, where you, you've kind of had three types of capitalism. And whenever we've had these crashes in the economy, we've had manifestations of moral outrage. But, but if you think about it, it becomes, you know, in many ways, it's really clear to us what's happening in the current environment. And I think this is the kind of optimistic element of the book. So one really important theme that we have is part of the reason that we're seeing tribalism exploited by the political elite elites is that we lack motivating ethical ideologies. So, so we lack a p- political ideologies that people can be motivated by, which they think are going to 
positively change their societies, positively change their societies. And, and the, the moral questions that we're all concerned about are about the sustainability of the planet, about the scale of inequality. I think whatever your perspective, wherever you sit on the political spectrum, the, the, a situation where you can have 90% of, the, of vast quantities of wealth concentrated in the hands of 1% of the population is clearly not very functional. So we have, we have moral outrage over the climate. We have moral outrage over inequality. And I think the other very important factor, which is per- pertinent to current economic environment, is recessions. So what we're really trying to say is we need real solutions to the problem of recession, global sustainability. And these, and, and these really need to be addressed. And that's the source of moral outrage that we're currently experiencing. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Mark, before I was about to ask you, why don't you give sort of um, the, the kind of overview, as it were, about how you want to kind of tie this together with these big picture items before we move to your proposals for um, how to change this thing? I mean, I mentioned earlier, I mean, essentially, we have, you know, three versions of capitalism, kind of gold standard capitalism based upon openness. And then we had a much more restricted national form of capitalism where people made cars and occasionally swapped them and then that created an inflationary crisis I think I'd rather go back if I may though to what Eric was just talking there about you know legitimate anger and let's put something very concrete and recent in here so we can solidify it in people's minds right let's think about what's happened in the Covid crisis so in the Covid crisis basically the world central bank which is the Fed for better or worse has come out and said don't worry if you're an asset holder we've got you back Right? If you're a company and you spent billions, literally billions, buying back your own shares and you have no cash buffers, we've got your back. Uh, you've got ETFs. We'll buy them, or at least we'll make a commitment to. We will catch every falling knife because you're our constituency. You're a normal worker. Screw you. You might get a check every three months. So what's behind the moral outrage is the asymmetry of the put that's being put upon people. And this is increasing through time. So just as crises are getting bigger every time and more expensive every time, there's more and more reinsurance for those that can best weather the crisis. Whereas those who actually are the least protected think 80 million Americans who are hourly workers with no statutory sick pay, very little rights, at will hire and fire positions, mainly concentrated in high touch, low productivity, low skill, low pay jobs. That's who's really paying the brunt of this. So when they watch Boeing get 50 billion like this, 
when they watch banks that have taken bets on mortgages get bailed out like this, when they're constantly told there's no money to relieve student loans or for raising minimum wages, and the Fed can magic up trillions in an afternoon, why would you not be morally outraged by that? That's where we are. And that's a good uh, point for us to think about what do we do about it, because you do spend the last part of your book with some really um, interesting uh, proposals. So... On the proposals to make us less angry, let's go through some of them. We won't get through all of them. But I'm intrigued by this National Wealth Fund, which provides assets to those who um, who have none. Eric, do you want to uh, talk us through that one? Sure. So, one, so we, we kind of have identified these three legitimate areas of concern, which are relevant to all of us in our societies and where there is a very, very strong cross-party consensus, which is we have to do something about the sustainability of our planet. We have to tackle wealth inequality and we have to try and bring recessions, keep recessions as as short um, as possible, causing as least damage as possible. So inequality, there is a very, very strong consensus, but there is no real consensus about what to do about it. And one of the kind of benchmarks we gave ourselves is is, is we said, right, we need real policies that can tackle these problems quickly, that will be effective, and that are simple to explain, right? And now the idea of a national, and, and we want a national wealth fund significantly to try and tackle wealth inequality. And the challenge there is is a very simple one, which is to say, how can we give ownership of assets to the large majority of our population who have very insignificant levels of asset ownership. Because in an increasingly uncertain world, asset ownership helps you in terms of the quality of your life. And so one of the interesting things, and we have to get into a bit of economics here, but one of the most defining characteristics of our current economy, and you will, as an economist will be well aware of this, Linda, is how low the real cost of capital is to the state. Right Now, what does that mean in English? It means that the British government today, for example, can borrow for 30 years at negative real interest rates. That means the private sector is paying the government to borrow, right? Now, all of us economists are pulling out our hair because we're tearing our hair out going, why on earth aren't we doing lots of investment spending? Because all you need to do is generate a positive return on your investment. And that actually strengthens the state balance sheet, right? So there's no issue about that the net assets of the state go up. If you borrow negative real and you invest the positive real, right? That's just finance. That's just arithmetic. It's the law of arithmetic. You can't disagree with it. So what Mark and I are saying is, well, if the Norwegian sovereign wealth fund can generate a six percent return over twenty years, or Harvard's endowment can, or the Wellcome Trust in the UK, we have all of these charities, independent organisations, sovereign wealth funds. Why can't the British government, the Irish government? the German government, the American government. Why can't we all do this as a state? And the answer is we could easily do it. We could issue 15% of GDP tomorrow in the bond market. We could buy a diversified diversified basket of global assets. And then by virtue of the arithmetic, over 15 or 20 years, you can repay the debt and you've got the assets. And we could we could distribute within within 18 months, we could distribute 15 percent of GDP to people in the economy who have no assets currently. And then they would be able to participate and share in the creation of national wealth. The idea really is that simple. And it's very difficult. Actually, I don't think we've heard a compelling counter argument. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. I think one, uh, maybe Mark will pick this up, and maybe you could pick that up in line with your second proposal, which is to revise the fiscal rules to finance things like the Green New Deal. One objection people always have is you're adding to the debt um, for both of those things. So Mark, I'll just let you handle that. Sure. I mean, you don't have to go full modern monetary theory, but they do make a very, very interesting and simple point about this. I'll give you an example of this. I I occasionally talk to the US Navy. I can't tell you why. It's top secret. But I occasionally talk to the US Navy. And I had a room full of officers and I said to them, who thinks the national debt's outrageous? And every hand went up. And I said, if you could, at the stroke of a pen, cancel the national debt tomorrow, would you do it? And everyone said yes. I said, congratulations, gentlemen, you've just destroyed America's national savings. It's the other side of the balance sheet. We only ever focus on one side of the balance sheet. If you're in a negative real environment and you're able to generate savings assets, that should be a good thing in a world of uncertainty. No one ever forces anyone to buy bonds. The auctions never fail. And yet somehow this is this terrible burden that we're giving interest-bearing assets to people in a negative real environment. So I just think that that's nonsense to start with, right? Let me say a little bit more, though, and see, see, see if this is useful. I've started to think about the back end of the book not as policies, because I hate that word, because it's too technocratic. And it doesn't sum to a politics. It's not an ideology. We're not saying man the barricades and follow Eric and Mark, or at least not yet. I think of these things now as furniture, And here's what I mean by this. If you have a group of people in a room, how you arrange the furniture will absolutely determine what type of evening they're going to have. So if I think of what we're arguing for, independent fiscal councils, the technical, very techy stuff like negative rates and the dual rates that Eric can talk about, but the simple to understand stuff like a data dividend that forms the basis of a kind of quasi-UBI if we do the Citizens' Wealth Fund. Imagine what happens if you just have that in the economy. Right. Basically, every election then changes its dynamics in terms of we now have new bits of furniture there which shape our politics. And that's what I think is actually really important about these proposals beyond what they do. They hopefully are able to be supported by both the left and the right and by others and will be seen as assets for society as a whole. And if you do that, you change the furniture in the room and you change the type of party you can have. And I I think that that's very important. Mm. Yeah, you're... It's, it's just a great way of, of sort of capturing so much of what you mean. Uh, furniture, coding, computers, crashing, software. I, I'm just a giant hardware. metaphor generator. That's pretty <laughs> much it. I, I must, actually, it's funny. This is true. My wife often says that I really shouldn't have been an academic. I should have been an advertising copyright guy. So maybe she's right. <laughs> Your wife, of course, is always right, Mark. Yes, of course. When she is German, so she actually is always right. We won't have time to go through all the proposals, but I just want to pick out a few that I thought just to spend a few moments on um, towards the end of our um, discussion. So Mark mentioned there the data dividend. Eric, what is the data dividend? Well, the data dividend here is, I mean, again, so a common theme amongst all of the policies really is to try and either broaden distribution or access to income and cash flows in different situations for households and also to try and change, to to broaden the distribution of of wealth to give people more protection. And the data dividend is a really simple idea, which is we have these huge technology companies who are making incredibly profitable. They have monopolistic characteristics 
And they're not simple monopolies in the old sense, because a lot of what they provide is for free, but they certainly have monopolistic characteristics. The interesting thing is that almost their their asset base, what gives them this value, is in fact ours, which is it's our data. And all we're really suggesting is, why don't we enforce some of our property rights over that data? And we could effectively auction our data. So if we recognize that as a community, we have a huge amount of valuable data, And so we're going to auction it in the same way that we auction Spectrum to mobile telephony companies. And as a consequence of that, that then gives us an asset that we can distribute. And this is a way of trying to, you know, we've thought an awful lot about these ideas of universal basic income. And we've thought that this is a way which a lot of this is about framing an economic policy. And the criticism of universal basic income is it's kind of something for nothing. Well, this is uh, which which people are resistant to. This actually is about something that you own and just getting paid for it, um, which lands very differently in terms of how people perceive it. I would just add on to that. Again, let's bring it into the current moment, because I think this proposal has suddenly become more relevant. As you both know, there's an OECD effort to try and get a global minimum corporate tax and also to basically move on from base erosion to basically taxing sales rather than declared profits to avoid all the double Irish and all this nonsense, right? And the Americans last week pulled the plugs on it. And they pulled the plug on it because, guess what? It's their tech companies. So they just basically said to the world, you don't get to tax our tech, but you get to use our tech. So if you try and tax our tech companies, we'll put tariffs on you. So this is, this is where we are just now. All right, so that's a tough one. But how about the following then? We refuse to give you the data. Right, you basically no. We'll tax you another way. If you won't pay a tax for what you provide as a service, then we will not allow you input data for your profit engines, and you need to buy it from us. So you can get the same effect as that OECD tax, but do it in such a way that you're actually benefiting your citizens at the same time, rather than just raising a bundle of revenue. Eric, you've got a number of other uh, fascinating proposals in there that um, Mark has already touched upon. I'm actually just going to give you free reign. Is there another one that you want to highlight, whether it's helicopter drops or, you know, (laughs) please? Well, which is related to a Green New Deal, you know, and this is where I really, really think you know, we, we all have a moral obligation to do something about this, right? So because I, I actually think that the whole challenge of sustainability is solves our economic problem. It's being presented the other way around, right? People go, oh, my God, we've got this huge challenge of climate change. What are we going to do? It's going to require huge sacrifices. I view it completely the other way around, which is, thank God we have this great opportunity to do loads and loads of investment spending because actually our economic system is crying out for investment spending. Now, you know, what, what, now, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean, it goes back to this point about where interest rates are. We seem to be concerned by the fact that central banks have zero interest rates. This actually, and, and we show how to do this in the book, but if you use dual interest rates, which the European Central Bank has started to do, which is if you leave the interest rate on deposits unchanged or you even raise it, and you cut the rate of interest on lending and targeted lending. This is rocket fuel. But the key point is nobody is onto this and nobody is saying, how do we target this, these loans? Now, if you said, I'm going to give the private sector 15-year loans at minus 2% to finance green energy investment, you will make our economy sustainable within 15 years. I mean, that is, just, that is as close a thing in economics to a certainty. And we can do it. So he likes dual interest rates. There you go. 
<laughs> I got that sense, Mark. I'm going to give you the same open-ended kind of final question before I sort of wrap up, which is,、um, you know, what、um, what do you want us to take away to become less angry about the world? I want to go back to the, the furniture analogy, seeing as that seemed to work with everyone. That you know, we need we need to change the furniture in the room. We need to change not just the outcomes of our economy, but the things that actually generate economic outcomes. And what we're proposing, basically taking the tech giants on by basically claiming property rights to what is ours in the first place, our data. In at the same time as you use the volatility in markets to issue debt, to buy up equities, to build a wealth fund. I think that parties that do this, particularly if we can get a cross-party agreement on this, we will change the way that the economy operates. Not just in terms of the outcomes it produces, but it will create something that's more transparent, that's fairer, that people feel that they have a stake in, and that they are valued. To go back to the whole thing of anger, so much of anger is about recognition. And basically, if you're recognised as a citizen who's making a contribution by virtue of the fact that you are a citizen, you have a claim to a stock of wealth, and you also generate assets which create an income, then you know that's a very different one from sort of higher and fire. Residualized neoliberal capitalism that people seem to have gotten to the end of their tether with. Same question to you, Eric. In addition to dual interest rates, what is your what keeps of, you up at night? Oh, I got plenty more. <laughs> well, well you know, no, the other thing, you know, I I I studied economics not because it's fascinating, or I mean, it is fascinating, but I, I really st- I mainly studied it. It started with moral outrage, which is you know recessions are extraordinarily damaging phenomena, right? If we look at so many social traumas are caused by recession, causes huge huge human suffering, and I find it absolutely unforgivable that the economics profession hasn't got an agreed. Kind of so you know, COVID hits. You can't predict a pandemic, but we're not surprised that there's a recession.、Right? We get we we typically get one at least once a decade on average.、Um, so why weren't we prepared, right? And I find this infuriating, and I find it also infuriating that the system we've become reliant on, which is central banks cutting interest rates, is an accident of institutional history. The only reason we have central banks cutting interest rates in response to recession is because central banks were set up in the 17 and 1800s to provide liquidity to the banking system and to finance governments. That's why they do asset purchases and cut interest rates. It is clearly not the optimal way to run monetary policy. And one of the proposals we make in the book, which is is becoming a Acceptable as an idea is let's give central banks the power to transfer directly to your bank account. So when there's a recession, it's really simple: you support everybody's income, and then when the recession goes away, you stop supporting their income, and, and wages pick up, and the rest of the economy, the private sector, takes over. It's really simple, and and it it all of the evidence we have is that it works because it's it's actually not empirically any different. To doing a combination of quantitative easing and 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 tax rebate and tax rebates, and if you look at the empirical evidence on it, that is a much much better supporter of our consumption and spending in our economy than all of this quantitative easing and all of these other you know pyrotechnics that that central banks are engaging on. So I think we need to stop messing around and set up a system. Where the Bank of England, the Fed, the Bank of Japan, the European Central Bank can have a meeting tomorrow, and the day after, every adult citizen has a thousand euros, you know, or thousand dollars pounds in their bank account, and you do that whilst unemployment persists, and you do more if you need to get the economy going, and then you stop when the economy is booming. It's as simple as that. 
We could go on, but we are out of time. But I'm going to squeeze in one final question to Mark because I really can't resist. So, um, Eric, you gave a lovely acknowledgement to your family and friends in your part of the world. <laughs> um, I know where this is going. Mark, you acknowledge your wife's steadfast refusal to engage with anything that you write. And perhaps this book may prove to be the exception. Was it? Yes, it was. She read the book. Oh, by the way, she's not alone either. I've, I ignore everything he says until this book came yeah, out. Yeah, that's true, actually. That's true. In fact, I'm pretty much just, like, ignored. So, you know, that was a that was me reflecting on life more than anything else. But no, she actually read it. She really read it. I mean, it's a, it's one of those things that I, I said to her. It's like, how can I acknowledge you in the book when you never read anything or write? And she said, well, you know, I listen to you all day. Do I have to acknowledge the nonsense you talk all day? And I thought, well, that's a fair enough point. So, so that was the acknowledgement. But no, she actually did. She read it. So there... I have to say that's probably the best endorsement for a book I have heard in a very long time. <laughs> Thank you very much to, uh, to Mark and to Eric for your thought-provoking book, Angrynomics. Now, I urge everyone to pick up a copy because the title is Angrynomics, but after you read it, um, you will feel less angry because there are creative ideas for moving forward. So thank you, too, uh, for the stimulating book. Um, enjoy the discussion. And a reminder, uh, for more podcasts, events, and all sorts of things, please go to intelligencesquared.com. I'm Linda Yu. Thank you very much. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world... And whatever you're doing, right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades – and we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. <laughs>